you are in for a treat right now. Our speaker today is John Reinhardt, and he has written this book called Gospel Patrons, which you can pick up on the way out. Uh, you're going to be blessed. So let me invite up John right now. Let's give him a warm Calvary welcome. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm from a long ways away. I live in the city of Fullerton, California. Hey, and when I was uh, engaged to be married, uh, the church that I was a part of at the time did not have a premarital counseling class, but we knew some people and had some friends who they did a premarital counseling class here. So we did six weeks here with, I think, six different couples, uh, premarital counseling, and I'm 15 years later still married. Praise God. Thank you, Calvary. <laughs> and happily married. I have an amazing wife named Renee and two little kids. Hey, I love this theme. I love that the heart of your church is to bless the world, not just to bless Santa Ana or even Orange County, but look beyond. There's a huge world out there with great needs. And the theme verse was read earlier, and it's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. It says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, comma, we also ought to love one another. Now, it doesn't say comma in there. I just read the comma out loud in case you were wondering. But if you see that on the screen, my favorite part of this theme and this graphic is the comma. Because there's something that comes before a comma and there's something that comes after the comma. And if we look back just two verses in this theme verse, what comes before the comma is amazing. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn there. It's 1 John chapter 4. If you have an iPhone, tablet, pull it out. 1 John chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, it's towards the back, right before the book of Revelation. Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, there you are. You guys like the Bible at this church? Okay, good. Me too. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 10 and 11. Or sorry, 9 and 10. I want to show you what comes before the comma and then we'll jump into verse 11. But here we go. If you're there, look at verse 9. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Period. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Period. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, comma, we also ought to love one another. Now, what comes before the comma is the love of God. And you go, well, I mean, God is love. Everybody would say that almost. But what does it mean that God is love? What's the essence of the love? What's the manifestation of God's love? What's the demonstration of how God loves us? It's primarily two things. One thing from verse 9, one thing from verse 10. Look again at verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. What do we call this? In theological terms, we call this the incarnation. Or you can just say this is Christmas. <laughs> this is Christmas. We celebrate that God sent his son into the world. That's miraculous. That's extraordinary. No one saw that coming. I mean, if you were 
trying to get your mind around what it means that the God who made the universe and spoke the stars into existence became a man in the form of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man in one person. We can't conceptualize this. There's no precedent for it. This has never happened since that God would enter into his own story and become a character. I, I like to think of this in terms of an author writing a story and all of a sudden he becomes a character in the very story that he was writing. Or my son really likes Legos. Anybody like Legos out there? Yeah, so you know what Legos are. They're the little yellow people. And they're small, right? If you put a little Lego guy next to me, he'd come up to the top of my shoe probably. <laughs> but as my son is playing with Legos, some one day, magically, mysteriously, miraculously, he became a Lego guy. Right? No, that doesn't happen. That this, this being who's more in, got more dimensions, more life, more character than a little plastic Lego guy somehow enters into that world and that story. That's what, in my fallen, broken, limited understanding, the God who made the world enters into it in the person of Jesus Christ. How do we know that God loves us? He came into our world. He didn't stay far off. He walked our dusty streets, entered our mess, and did something about it. What did he do? Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is just a big word, but all it means is that Jesus took the wrath of God for you and for me. I know this isn't popular anymore. We don't talk about this a whole lot. We don't even like to use this word a whole lot anymore. Heaven and hell are real. We all sin against God. And everyone who rejects God, walks away from God, ignores God, deserves the wrath and judgment of God. It's not that God just sweeps our sins under the rug or let's just forgive and forget and move on. No, there's a punishment to be paid for our sin. If you're new to church, this is why we need God. Because we have rebelled against him and we need to be saved from the wrath of God, from the righteous judgment of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, what he did, among many things, was he propitiates us. What that means is that when he's hanging on the cross, he's taking your punishment and the wrath that you deserve for sin upon himself. Can you imagine the wrath of Almighty God coming for you And someone steps in the way, pushes you out, and says, take it upon me. Take it upon me. That's how we know that God loves us. There's nothing more that God could do to demonstrate his love for you. He enters our world, and when he enters it, he doesn't come as a high and mighty king. He comes as a servant, and he comes as a sacrifice. How do you know that God loves you? He generously gave his only son, and the son gave his life to his very last breath and his very last drop of blood. God loves you. Some of you are wondering that today. Does God love me? Can he love me? I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. Last night was tough. This week was difficult. God loves you. He's proven it in the person of Jesus. But my sins are too great. But I, No, it says he... He became, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He knows you're a sinner. He knows I'm a sinner. That's why he demonstrated his love by sending Jesus. This, what comes before the comma on this slide is the amazing grace, the generous, lavish, extravagant love of God. 
doing what we never could have asked for or prayed for. He comes and he propitiates, he saves, he forgives. What comes before the comma is the amazing generosity and love of God. What comes after the comma? That's what we're going to talk about the rest of our time today. When God has demonstrated his amazing love for you, when he has poured it out upon you in the person of his son Jesus, how should we respond? Notice that it's, it, there's not a period here. It's not God loves us, period. God saves us, period. God forgave and for, you know, propitiated our sin, period. End of story. It's really easy to think about living like that, like God saved me, yes. God forgave me, yes, period. But in your story and in mine, there's a comma. He doesn't save us, period, and then we wait until we go to heaven one day. So we're going to live 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And then, okay, cool, now my life as a, as a follower of God can start. He saved me back there, and I've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And now I can, life can start. No. When he saves you, he puts a comma after it because he's got stuff for you to do between now and the time you go home. There's a calling on your life, a destiny that he has for you to be engaged with his plans and his purposes in our generation. You with me so far? That's what I love about the comma. I, I don't know if you're with me. Are you still with me so far? Okay, good. Just checking. I know the second service, you guys got a little bit more sleep, but we still lost an hour. I'm sorry about that. So the comma is what, what God did came before. What comes after the comma is our response to this kind of God. I want to tell you my story and how God has led me to respond and, and something he's allowed me to discover how many people respond to the comma and invite you into that. When I was 25, or when I was, sorry, back up, when I went to college, I didn't know what to study. I'd been saved as a seven-year-old kid at a Christian camp, grew up in a family that loved the Lord. My ambition throughout my childhood life from the time I was seven onward was to play professional sports. First it was baseball, then it was basketball. Neither of those exactly worked out. They don't really tell you the odds when you dream those dreams. And if they do, you don't believe them. You're just like, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. It wasn't me. Um, That's okay, because I would be retired by now if I was, and I'm just getting started. So I'm really happy about that. But there was that season of what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I supposed to do with, the, with all that God's given me, my talents, time, skills, gifts? How am I supposed to respond to what God has done for me in Jesus? Well, when I was in college, I studied business marketing, got a job in sales afterwards, selling copy machines and printers to businesses in Orange County. And so every day I was knocking on 125 business doors saying, I know you really don't want me here, but hi, I'm here to sell you a copy machine. It was awesome. <laughs> you're laughing because you're like, I don't want that job. No, you don't. No, you don't. But God blessed me in that job and used me, and he taught me so much in that job. And after uh, about a year and a half, I got really good at the job, and God used it to pay off all my student loans and kind of enabled me to ask a different question, which wasn't just, what do I need to do to make money to pay for school or to pay for the loans? But God, what do you want me to do with my life? It doesn't feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing forever. I can do it. And by 25, I'd made 100 grand and was successful and kind of on my way up and but I'm like, is this it? At 25, is it just now the zeros get bigger and the paychecks get bigger and the lifestyle gets fancier? And um, is this, is that it? Because I went to college, I've been working hard, but what am I supposed to do? And through the counsel of some wise mentors and friends and pastors, I ended up going back to seminary. Now, if you're new to church, seminary is where you study to be a pastor or study to be a professor of theology or something like that. 
So I studied Greek and Hebrew and New Testament and Old Testament and theology and preaching and pastoral ministry classes, not sure what my direction would be, not even sure I wanted to be a pastor, but I knew I wanted to be more deeply grounded in God's word, whatever I did in the rest of my life. So all the people in my company thought I was nuts because I made 20 grand one month and the next month I quit and took a student job where I made six grand for the entire year. <laughs> They're like, this doesn't add up. This is not making sense. I didn't see that in your career track. Uh, but I was actually thrilled and totally full of peace about the decision. So I studied for four years in seminary, graduated with a master's divinity degree, and my wife had been supporting and continued to work while we were in school, while I was in school. So when I finished school, I said to her, sweetheart, we've been chasing my dreams for four years. What's your dream? And she said, well, ever since I was 13 years old, I wanted to travel all the way around the world in a single shot. All the way around, like literally circle the globe. And I'm like, that's awesome. (laughs) Who dreams that? I did not dream that. She's like, yeah, I don't want to just go to Europe and come back. I've been there or Africa and and come back. I, I literally want to go all the way around the world. And I said, let's do it. We're 29. We don't have a mortgage. We don't have kids. School's done. My student job is done. So for four and a half months, we circled the globe. And we had two goals. And they weren't just to sit on beaches and drink margaritas or something dumb like that. (laughs) It's like we wanted to become global Christians. God is a God who's working all over the world. I want to see it. I want to experience it. I want to see the people who are on the front lines. I want to meet them. I want to see what their lives and their ministries look like. And secondly, we wanted to learn to walk by faith. So life is pretty comfortable and pretty easy in Orange County, as you know. I know it's not perfect. I know it's not all easy. But compared to the rest of the world, this is one of the easiest places to live. This is the Disneyland of the world. So we said we want to to stretch. We want to stretch out and learn to walk by faith. Which meant that we booked our plane tickets and the loose skeleton of our trip. But we didn't book where we were going to stay for 132 nights. So we'd show up in a place and pray. God provide us our daily bread and provide us our daily bed. And then I'd get on my iPhone 3 on TripAdvisor and start praying and looking for places to stay. And it was awesome. It was. It was a a life-changing trip. Many of you would probably say that the biggest risks you've ever taken in life have led you to where you are today. That when you look back, it was a big risk, but it didn't. Now you would have done it all over again, and that was this trip for us. But it was life-changing for me in in two particular ways. Uh, One was that we were in Ethiopia and God burdened our hearts to adopt. And we began the process of adopting two little children. And so I have a little eight-year-old girl from Ethiopia and a little seven-year-old boy. Been a part of our family now for five years and they're awesome little kids. But the other was we were in India visiting a, a friend of mine who's a pastor there. And just we were talking about life and whatever. And he said, hey, if you ever go to Sydney, Australia... I want you to meet a friend of mine. His name is Simon. And ask him about something called gospel patronage. And I said, I don't even know what that is, but this is crazy. We have tickets. We'll already be in Sydney in two weeks. He said, great, I'll connect you. So he connected us over email. And two weeks later, we showed up in downtown Sydney wearing jeans and a sweatshirt because we'd been traveling in the, trekking in the Himalayas and on a safari in Kenya and seeing the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and going to the Middle East. And that's what we had. Here everyone's wearing blue and black suits. There was literally a judge walking down the street with the white wig and the black gown. I'm like, this is nuts. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I've seen a lot of things, but okay. This went back in time for a minute there. We go up to the 31st floor of this private equity company and of an office building, a private equity company. And out comes a guy we're supposed to meet who's a partner of this firm. Silver suit, silver hair, British accent, total stud. 
and he's humble. He takes us out to coffee, and somewhere into his cup of coffee and my cup of hot chocolate, I said, I'm supposed to ask you about this thing called gospel patronage. I don't really know what it is, but my, you know, our mutual friends set this up, and, and he said, great. Whenever we look back in history and see the ways that God advanced powerfully, Think revivals, think reformations, think the periods of history where you could just say over that generation, God showed up. Or you could say over that country, God just came. He said there's always the spiritual leader, the person who's the torchbearer, the proclaimer of God's word, the herald of the gospel, the preacher, the missionary, the pastor, the Bible translator, the Bible study leader. But when we dig a little closer, or dig a little deeper and look a little closer, Those spiritual leaders were always supported by people who were gifted in business, generosity, and partnership. We tend to think of the people who are the spiritual leaders who get the biographies written about their lives as those are the heroes, those are the champions, and they are. But they're not lone rangers. Behind every great move of God is a gospel proclaimer and a gospel patron. Someone is going to go, and someone's going to give. Someone's going to speak, and someone's going to send. But when these partners come together, watch out. God does explosive things. When people come together, and they're playing their different parts, saying, I don't have to be him. I don't have to be her. She doesn't have to do what I do. I'm going to be me for the glory of God. What does that look like, God? That's what comes after the comma. God so loved you, comma, how are you going to respond? Comma, what is your life going to look like? Comma, what gift are you going to give the world? Comma. This is what I was discovering that day in Sydney, Australia. He shared a couple stories with me, one of which I'll share with you now. He said, 500 years ago, this book did not exist. This is an English Bible. 500 years ago, this was not in the world. As you probably know, the Old Testament in the Bible was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And in the 4th century, it was translated into Latin. This version of the Latin Bible was called the Latin Vulgate. And for a thousand years, the Bible remained locked in Latin. Now, initially, that worked well because people spoke Latin, and it was an ordinary language of the Roman Empire. But as time went on, the different parts of Europe, Latin was not the common language anymore. Latin was the language of the priests. Latin was the language of the academics, sort of high society uh, officials. But it wasn't the language you'd speak to your kids in. It wasn't the language you would do business deals in. It wasn't the language you'd go out to the pub and talk with your friends. No. In England, people spoke English. But the Bible was in Latin. Do you get this? And it wasn't just in Latin for one generation. It was in Latin for 1,000 years which means your grandmother, grandmother never prayed the prayer, the Lord's Prayer over you in English, most likely. And you didn't know Psalm 23 by heart since the time you were 12. And you had never probably held your own Bible, let alone read a Bible that you could understand, which meant that everything that you had ever known about God had been handed down to you by somebody else. Kind of like hearsay. You remember the old game telephone? You don't get the same message at the end? That was the only way you had to learn about God. 
You'd go to church and it would be all in Latin. So if you weren't very good in Latin, you'd sit there and kind of experience the religious experience, much like you would in many cathedrals today. But you didn't understand, you didn't know what was going on, and you didn't feel like you had a close and personal relationship with God yourself. Latin was considered an exalted holy language. And so they outlawed Bible translation. They outlawed it. Think of this. To translate the Bible from one language into another was the equivalent of heresy. You could be killed for it. But in the 1500s, along came a young man named William Tyndale. And Tyndale was a gifted linguist. He had uh, trained and studied at Oxford. He taught himself biblical Greek. He knew Latin. And he came from a family of merchants who didn't speak Latin. And God put, in, put within him a burning ambition to give his nation the gift of an English Bible. Six million English speakers in his day, and he wanted to give them all God's word in their heart language. But it was illegal. So he sought permission from the, one of the high-up uh, leaders in the Church of England at the time, a guy named Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall. How about that for a name? And he goes to this guy and says, here's a, a sample of my translation. You know, I know this is uh, outside the bounds of what's legal, but you're kind of in an official position. Maybe you'll give me an official nod, and I'll be able to continue to work with this project, and you could fund me to do it. And the guy says, no. No, I'm not going to do that. So here's Tyndale with an ambition and a dream in his heart for something great for God and for his nation, and he can't do it. He doesn't have the means to do it. So he takes some odd preaching jobs around London and pops into a church that you can visit today on Fleet Street in London. It's called St. Dunstan in the West. And while he's at, preaching at St. Dunstan in the West, there was an unusual businessman there who was from a different part of London, and he shouldn't have been there. And that day, you kind of went to church in your neighborhood or your parish, but this guy found himself in the west part of London, listening to a very unusual preacher who really believed the Bible was God's word, and he preached it with authority and clarity and passion. And afterwards, the two of them got to know each other a little bit. Tyndale revealed to him this ambition in his heart, this this dream that he had. Humphrey Monmouth was a, a cloth merchant, and cloth was the equivalent of technology today. It was popular, it was successful, it was the industry where you could make a lot of money, and Humphrey Monmouth was good at it, really good at it. Businessmen are acquainted with risks. So he says, to, he says to William Tyndale, God has given you a job to do. It's time you get to work. Come to my house. Live with me. I will provide for you, and I'll protect you. For six months, William Tyndale lived with this merchant, Humphrey Monmouth, furiously translating the New Testament from Greek into English for the first time in human history. He's meeting different merchants who no doubt would have been in the home. He's hearing the rumblings of what's going on in Germany. Martin Luther had just finished the German Bible in 1522. And it was exploding. Housewives and low-class, low-income workers are getting God's word in German. They're falling in love with God for themselves for the very first time. No doubt that stoked the fire in Tyndale's heart. God, for, what about for my nation? What about for my people? What about for my friends? What about for my family? What if I could bring them God's word? So he's furiously translating. And after six months, his patron, Humphrey Monmouth, puts him on one of his business ships and carries him over to London where all of the best printers were. 
And a year later, what turns up is 3,000 copies of the English New Testament roll off the presses in 1526. We're coming up on the 500-year anniversary of that day. 1526, 3,000 copies. There's three left in the world. You can see one in the British Library. They're about the size of a small journal. And I tried to use my author credentials to get behind the really thick glass. And I was like, well, you know, I probably care about this more than anybody. And of course, I'm writing about these things. And is there any chance that British Library, you'd let me, you know, peer behind the glass and maybe turn a page or two? They're like, we don't care who you are. No. (laughs) We bought it for a million pounds. There's only three in the world. But these were little journals, and they would put it in watertight boxes, and they would drop it in a barrel of oil, or they'd drop it in a barrel of wine in Europe. They would sometimes unbind the books and layer it within cloth, and then smuggle it on the merchant ships back into London. And they began to sell these little Bibles on the black market. You know, the kind that's like under the counter at the bookstore, and you're like, hey, you got one? Who are you? How much you got? Three shillings and two pence. I can give you the book of Ephesians for that. <laughs> People began to gather around God's word like never before in England. I got an entire New Testament. Come to my barn. We're going to read. Did you know? Have you heard? Jesus says, let your light shine. He says it. He says, let it shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I've never heard that. I've never known that. Did you know what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes? Have you seen how he treats tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners? I love this God. People began to explode with this passion for God like they've never had before. Why? Because they're reading God's book in their language. And as I heard this story that day in Sydney, Australia, The question that just kept coming to my mind was, what would have happened had the business guy not stepped forward and played his part? What would have happened in history? How would history be different if he didn't rise up and say, this is my part to play? We left Sydney, Australia, came home. I began studying God's word with this passion for this idea called gospel patrons. And I came across a passage that I had never seen before. If you have your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 8. You've read Luke before. You've heard Luke preached perhaps. If you're like me, you've read right over these verses because they feel like a footnote before you get to the real action. The miracle stories and the sermons and the testimonies. And you've read right over these, but it's here in Scripture. Jesus Christ had gospel patrons funding his ministry. Let me show you. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. You guys there? Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, he, this is talking about Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. There's that one part to play. We have a proclaimer of the gospel. He's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others, comma, who provided for them out of their means. Many others, comma, who provided for them out of their means. 
Three women funded Jesus' ministry. We have their names. Real people. Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. We don't know a lot about these women, but we do know their lives were touched and changed by Jesus, and what they put after the comma was a generosity to step forward so that other people could know Jesus too. It says that Mary had seven demons go out from her. That We're to assume here that Jesus healed her from demonic influences and significant brokenness and vulnerability in her life. Not one demon, not two, seven. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, Herod's household manager didn't mean Herod's butler. It meant Herod's wealth manager, property manager, revenue manager, finance manager. Now, Herod's a pretty important guy, and his wife, sorry, his household manager Chusa's wife, goes on to use the significant resources that she had to join this band of followers. Some said he's a prophet. Some said he's Elijah. People didn't know who this man was, but they'd never seen or heard anything like Jesus when he taught. And Herod's household manager's wife, Joanna, risks it all to start following Jesus and give, giving generously to him. And Susanna. Now, we don't know much about Susanna. This is the one time in the entire Bible that her name gets mentioned. But wouldn't that be cool if your name got mentioned one time in the Bible? I mean, like, one is better than nothing, right? Like, that's awesome. But her life is summed up mainly by the bigger story that she's a part of. It doesn't tell us if she was married. It doesn't tell us if she has kids. It doesn't tell us where she got the money to give to Jesus' ministry. But it does say that she had resources that she provided for Jesus and his boys to go from town to town, village to village, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Like most great gospel patrons in history, her life is best summarized by the bigger story she was a part of. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever thought or asked the question, how did God choose to fund Jesus' ministry? You probably never thought about that. I never thought about that. What he did was he called three people to step forward and say, me, I'll give generously. I know there's a million things I could do with this money. I know I could provide for myself and then my kids and my grandkids. And, well, of course, I'm going to have great-grandkids. So I should probably save us money to provide for them. <laughs> no, these women are like, Jesus has radically saved and transformed our lives. We're in. Comma. <laughs> Comma, we're following. Comma, we're going to give. Comma, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Comma, this looks a little crazy. Comma, I feel the fear and the risk, but I'm going to step forward anyways. Comma. This is what they did. They stepped forward and followed Jesus. And if we track with these three women through the end of the Gospel of Luke, this wasn't just a one-time gift and they walked away. We see them in Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 24, when all the 12 disciples had scattered because they were afraid they would be the ones arrested and crucified next. These women were there. The women who had traveled with Jesus from Galilee in Luke chapter 8 all the way to Luke chapter 23 are there witnessing the crucifixion witnessing Jesus' burial, preparing ointments and spices, even in his death, they're still giving to him. And when Jesus Christ rises from death and the sovereign Lord has authority over heaven and earth, he could have appeared to anyone he wanted to first. And he chose to appear to his gospel patrons. It says in Luke chapter 24, verse 10, Jesus shows up to Mary, Joanna, and this other woman named Mary. So perhaps Susanna had died at that point. 
Jesus shows up to Mary and Joanna, reveals himself and says, go tell the boys. Game's back on. Tell them to stop crying and start praying. I got a mission to accomplish. There's a comma. At Jesus' death at the crucifixion, it looked like there was a big fat period at the end of our faith. And all, all the hopes and the expectations that had been welling up in Jerusalem at that time, who is this man? No one speaks like him. I've never seen miracles and signs and wonders and power like this man, but he lives simply and humbly. He's obviously a man of God. And then the cross comes. Crucifixion comes. It looks like the Romans get the upper hand. It looks like the Jewish leaders won. Period. No. Comma. Comma. Because three days later, Jesus Christ rose out of the tomb. He kicked the door open, walked through, and says, I'm back. Comma. We got work to do. We got work to do. Acts chapter 2. Stay and pray because my Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You are going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that's what this day is about at Calvary Church of Santa Ana. It's about the 50 families that are here, the 90 missionaries that you support as a family, we're still in the place between comma and exclamation point in glory. Our salvation's not done. It's not period. We're not waiting just for Jesus to come back. We are after the comma before the exclamation point. And I want to rally you as a church to say, let's go. Let's go. Let's keep going. The job is not done. Jesus' name is not known by every tribe, language, people, and nation on earth. But it could be, and it looks like it will be in our generation. We're going to need an army of gospel patrons to step up and many bold, courageous people to go. But whether you find yourself on the part of the goer or the giver, the speaker or the sender, you do have a part to play. You're not just sitting in church, people. You are the church. We are the church. And now is the time, right? I'm fired up. It's my first time preaching at this church, but I'm fired up because you have a heart for missions in this church, and it's historical, and it's deep, and this blood has been running in this church's veins for years. It's a new season at this church, isn't it? There's a lot of changes going on right now. There's strong new leadership that's in place, and we want to keep the same blood running in the veins. And the blood is, there's been something that God has done. We're not ashamed of it. We're not backing away from it. He sent his one and only son, and that son took the wrath of God in my place. He has completely forgiven and freed me from sin. Kama, let's get to work. Kama, let's go. Kama, let's give. Kama, let's pray. Kama, let's send. Guys, this is my heartbeat for you as you get charged up again to say this isn't just another Sunday. It's not just another missions thing. It's not just another call to generosity. This is a call to rise up and be the people of God for the purposes of God in this generation. Why not Calvary Church of Santa Ana? Why not? In 1948, my grandpa was a pastor at a small church outside of Chicago. Storefront church. He was 21 years old, a Wheaton student. And a couple came up to him in church one day. And they said, Pastor, you're not very missions-minded. If you ever get the opportunity to go, first $500 will come from us. And I can still hear my 91-year-old grandpa's voice say, $500 was a pretty big offering. I mean, my salary as a pastor was only $100 a month. A year and a half later, Youth for Christ came to my grandpa and they said, Royal, that was his name, 
Royal, we're sending 100 teams to Europe this summer to evangelize Europe. We're going to need a worship leader, 100 worship leaders. We're going to need 100 evangelists. Where do you want to go? First chance. He's like, well, I'm part Swedish, so maybe I'll go to Sweden. And they said, great, you'll have to raise $1,500. So he went back to Marge and Andy Rondazzo in his church. And he said, uh, how about that $500? And they were good for it. Over the next few months, the rest of the money miraculously came in. My grandpa took a huge risk. His wife was pregnant, nine months pregnant, had the baby, and he left for the entire summer to evangelize Europe. She's raising a newborn on her own, first, first child. He comes back from that experience. Two years later, he gets another opportunity, another knock on the door from a guy who worked for Greater, Greater Europe Mission. And he said, Royal, we started a Bible school in Paris for the French, and we need to start one in Italy for the Italians. They're not going to go to France to learn the Bible. <laughs> they need to learn it in Italian. Would you come? The faith that had been built in my grandpa through the Rondazzo's $500 and that first trip to Europe made him say yes to a lifetime of service in Italy. Lived in Italy 48 years, planted the Instituto Evangelici Biblici in Rome. Still there today, training pastors all across Italy. He's kind of like an Italian, like Christian celebrity led countless people to the Lord, discipled numerous pastors. He's one of the most generous men that I know. And I ask myself, had God never called the Rondazzas to give $500, how would my life be different? Because grandpa and grandma had children who went on to become missionaries in the Congo. They had grandchildren who went on to become missionaries in Chad. Oman, Indonesia. And all of us grew up hearing these amazing stories of God. We took risks. We stepped out. We got on a boat to sail to Italy with three little children and didn't even know if our visa was going to come through. And God was there. Behind every great movement of God is someone who's going to preach and proclaim the gospel. And someone who's going to step forward and say, that's not my part, but I do have a part. And I'm in. I want to invite you to that this week for your church. If God has entrusted you with much or with little, it's your job to be faithful and to say yes. It's your job to be faithful and say yes. You don't have to have much, but you do have to say yes. My invitation for you is join the amazing adventure of God. Whatever side of that partnership you find yourself on and say yes to Jesus, I want to see the world come to know you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great and an awesome God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us. Everything that comes before the comma is good. Everything that comes before the comma is love. Everything that comes before the comma is generosity. And I pray that everything that comes after the comma for each one of us 
would be generosity, love, and goodness so that the world might know how awesome you are. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.